Welcome to the latest episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Bradford Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute, and today marks one of our very special hidden gems. These are some of our most intriguing interviews from our library of now over 150 episodes. This week, we have Dr. Kenneth Pelletier, an MD, PhD, who specializes in the area of epigenetics. What are epigenetics, you ask? I had the same question. He and I were both speaking at the same conference a couple of years back, and I, I popped into his presentation to listen in. His insights were fascinating. I was blown away. In a nutshell, many of the things that we attribute to genetics, well, they are present in our genes, but they are turned on or turned off by our lifestyle choices. You are going to love this discussion. Well, of course, un unless you like blaming your genes, in that case, you might want to skip this one. You know very well our mission here is to be a catalyst and help others do the same. A catalyst is something that drives positive change, but doesn't get burned out in the process. That's us. That's you. If you hadn't heard, we recently partnered with an organization to provide Be a Catalyst hoodies, t-shirts, all kinds of stuff. This is tied to our mission and not intended to be a revenue stream. As such, we're donating 100% of the profits, 100% to charity. There are all sorts of designs and colors to choose from, and we'll link to that in the description if you want to check it out. If you do order something, please send us a picture. We want to include you in our Catalyst Wall of Fame that we'll be developing over time. As always, if you have any questions about the coaching certification, Rocky Mountain Coaching Retreat and Symposium, continuing education options, or anything else, please feel free to reach out to us directly. Results at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com, and we're happy to set up some time to connect personally. Or, or you can go to the website, CatalystCoachingInstitute.com. Institute.com. Thank you so much for being part of the Catalyst community. Now let's listen into this hidden gem with Dr. Kenneth Pelletier on the latest episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast. Well, Dr. Pelletier, it's so good to have you on the podcast today. The information you're bringing to us, I think people are just going to wake up and say, wow, I'd heard a little of that before, but this is so intriguing. When when you and I had a chance to meet at the conference what, last month when we were both speaking, I was just in awe of some of the stuff you were sharing. So really great to have you. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for the invitation. I'm looking forward to this. Absolutely. So the, the audience knows of your bio, and frankly, it's a very extensive bio from the introduction. Can you give us a brief version of how you ended up on this path from your original days back in med school? Well, my original uh, research, and again, this would have been in the mid-70s at the UCSF School of Medicine, really um, focused on, at that time, there was a debate about whether people could influence the involuntary nervous system. So in the textbooks, you had the voluntary and the involuntary nervous system, and never the twain shall meet. But that never made sense to me because if you think about it, you can hold your breath, which is voluntary, but at some point your oxygen level drops and your breathing kicks in and that's involuntary. Or you can hold your eyes open for a period of time until the surface lens dries and then you'll blink and that's a voluntary hold followed by an involuntary response. So something about that never made sense to me. And there was a researcher, Dr. Elma Green at the Menninger Foundation, who had studied what we ended up calling adept meditators. Uh, and he, he basically, these are meditators who would inflict, self-inflict major wounds. They would skewer themselves with bicycle spokes. 
during meditation, and they would look as though they were having a vacation on the beach. Hmm. Um, and he did these studies, but they were very uncontrolled and criticized, and you know, for all the reasons they were sure. dismissed. Um, I heard about them and decided I would replicate those under very stringent laboratory conditions. So I did, and um, had individuals, one person who learned his ability from being in a concentration camp, other mm. and other individuals, actually a drug smuggler who learned to control bleeding and pain so that he wasn't discovered and arrested. So that was the mid-70s, and it really, to me, was the beginning of realizing that we have an immense amount of regulatory control over our biology. And now, fast forward 50-some-odd years later, uh, what I'm realizing and starting about seven or eight years ago with a research project in genetics and epigenetics, realize that that same degree of self-regulation uh, influence over mind over body or mind-body interaction that I saw in the mid-70s now holds true for our influence over the expression of our own genes. So that intervening you know, years has been um, really the development of this. That's one direction. And the second has been in the area of corporate programs, working with Fortune 500 companies to develop and evaluate interventions with clinical and cost outcomes. That's my more conventional uh, research, but I use many of these unconventional methods and interventions in the course of these more um, orthodox research designs. So those are my, hopefully that's a, as brief as possible, <laughs> uh, two parallel paths to this present time. Very good. Very good. So you mentioned epigenetics. That, that's obviously a, a big focus of what you're doing. For those listening who hear that and say, wait, what? Can you describe it in lay terms for us? Yes. Um, I think the greatest misconception most people have and most people in the health and medical professions have is that our genes are like the uh, hard drive in a computer, that they're a set of invariant regulations, rules that govern everything that happens in and on the computer. Um, epigenetics says, no, that's actually not the case that our genes are more like an interactive software. So it's more like an artificial intelligence system where we're continually interacting with our own genes in a way that creates expression or suppression. So the expression is that if you have a genetic predisposition to say intelligence or to a disease, heart disease or cancer, you can enhance the likelihood of that occurring by doing certain things in your life, mm -hmm. or you can suppress that tendency. So this area of epigenetics is really the new science of interacting with our genes second by second, minute by minute, in a way that is actually very powerful and is not the genes are your destiny uh, model that we've grown up with. I love that. So I, it's, if, if for nothing, if we get nothing else out of this conversation, just having that out there and encouraging that, that your genes are not your destiny is awesome. I love it. I love it. And, and, and I noticed, uh, I was watching some videos of you preparing for this interview. And one of your quotes that jumped off the page to me was essentially what you just said. Our genes may indicate a vulnerability to disease, but they cannot predict our future. Could you continue to develop that a little bit and what that concept may mean for health and wellness coaches that are working with clients 
who the clients are thinking, I'm trapped. This is my genes. This is what my father had or my mother had or my grandparents. What, what, how can the coaches address that conversation? Uh, as usual, the best way is through good science. And there is there, there's a, a growing body of evidence, and it's been around for a while. This is not radically new, except we're beginning to have more and, and more precise research, even with NASA, which we can get into in a little bit. But the one of the first studies was done by Bert Vogelstein at Johns Hopkins University. And he studied 15,000 people over, I'm sorry, 7,000 twins over 15 years, and uh, identical twins. And what he wanted to know was if one twin had a disease, did that predict the same disease in their identical twin? Now, if you had a genetic deterministic, reductionistic model, you'd say, yes, of course, they had the same genes, they're twins, yeah, clearly. So he followed them and he looked at incidents of cancer, heart disease, immunological disorders, irritable bowel, et cetera. And what he found is that the incidence of a disease in one twin did not, not predict the incidence in the other twin. Hmm. So in the heart disease, it was 50-50. If one twin had heart disease, the likelihood of the other twin having heart disease was about 50%. Uh, for Parkinson's disease, it was actually 5%. If one twin manifested Parkinson's, the likelihood the other one would is 5%. Uh, for most cancers, he looked at a number of different cancers. The prediction was about 40%. So in other words, having the same genetic predisposition because they're living different lifestyles, they're eating different foods, they're under different stress, et cetera, um, had a major modification of the genetic push toward one disease or another. The other thing that he realized in this, this now a classic study, um, was that the genetic makeup of one twin would only predict a single disease in the other twin as a possibility. So if you looked at heart disease in one twin and saw heart disease, yes or no, in the other twin, it told you nothing about if the second twin had cancer or mm. irritable bowel or inflammatory disease. So the prediction was only good for one disease. And again, in all the cases we just cited, it was very much of a miss. So that kind of information, I think, for coaches, and there are many studies like that. Uh, as I said, there's an excellent study that was just done with NASA. Um, that kind of information really helps to break that mindset of, oh, it's my genes. There's nothing I can do about it. The point is there's everything you can do about it. Wow, that's Tremendous. What was the lead author on that one again? Uh, that was Bert Fogelstein, V-O-G-E-L-S-T-E-I-N, Bert Fogelstein at Johns Hopkins University, a, a, a true classic study in this area of epigenetics. Beautiful. All right. I'm sure folks are going to want to pull that up and share it with their clients. So you, you've been at this and you mentioned in your, your introductory comments, you know, 50 years ago, I was doing this. What are some of the biggest surprises as you've been doing this cutting edge research for five decades? What are some of the biggest surprises you've discovered along the way that might be news to people that are listening in addition to what you've already shared? Well, to me, what is so striking is that if you have training in biology or chemistry or medicine or nursing or whatever, you know, chiropractic, whatever your clinical training is, 
we are all taught a model of biological reductionism, that the mechanisms we can observe and test in biochemistry and in biology is all there is. I mean, that's the basic model. It's a very physical, reductionistic, causal uh, model. And what I've learned is that's simply totally inadequate. Um, it's accurate in some instances, but in very precious few. And the main thing that to me continual, continually surprises me is the degree to which, which influences internally and externally have a profound influence on our health, on our life expectancy, which is a very different kind of uh, surprise. Most people assume their life expectancy is governed by genetics. It's not, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. I find to be really fascinating. So these things that we consider to be invariate, uh, things over which we have no control or influence, are in fact influenceable by things like uh, meditation, adversely by stress. Diet has a profound impact on genetic expression, our psychosocial interactions with friends. So people that have connections to others, family, friends, church groups, whatever social groups you have, have one-tenth the incidence of heart attacks as people who don't. Um, the interaction with our physical environment has a very direct causal impact on our genes. So my book title, uh, Change Your Genes, is actually a, a gotcha title. <laughs> you know, genes don't change. They can be damaged by radiation. They can be damaged by hormone disruptors that come from basically reared uh, animals that are reared for slaughter, or or uh, they can come from exposure to uh, petrochemicals. And I think the current controversy with uh, Roundup and Monsanto is a clear example. Uh, glycosate, which is the active in agent in, in uh, Roundup, is a known carcinogen. It is classified as such by the World Health Organization. The United States EPA has failed to echo that. Uh, but there was a study two months ago uh, looking at plankton in Antarctica, and that's a pretty esoteric study. But they looked at plankton, and what they found is that glycosate is in the organism of every single plankton uh, entity in Antarctica. So we have a pervasive carcinogenic agent. We've basically poisoned the planet. That has a direct impact on our genetic uh, expression. And of course, pharmacology has a huge impact on whether or not genes express themselves and how. So those kinds of subtle multifactorial influences that we encounter and we manifest every day of our lives and the profound impact it has on our health, our longevity is to me astounding. I mean, I, I remain in awe uh, of the extent to which this occurs even now. Was there a time when you, and, and I guess you slightly alluded to this in the very first question, but was there a time when the light bulb just went off and you said, oh, this is it. Like, this is the direction I want to take in my research because of the impact it can have long term. Do you, do you remember something that caused that to click? Yeah, I do, actually. Um, great question. Um, hadn't thought about that. Um, but the, the first person that I studied at UCSF, and this is going back to the Adept Meditator study, was a man named Jack Schwartz. Uh, Jack was a 
a healer, a lecturer, a philosopher, and uh, he had learned his autonomic regulation as a uh, prisoner in a Nazi concentration camp. And he had been tortured, and when he uh, was tortured, he fainted, went into a reverie, and in the reverie, he had a visionary experience, and specifically, he saw himself, he was raised as a Catholic uh, in, in the Netherlands. He saw himself standing at the foot of the cross, and that when Christ looked up into the heavens and said, oh, oh, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? Jack said he didn't look up. He looked into the eyes of every person standing at the foot of the cross. And when Jack's eyes met with his eyes, he woke up, came out of his reverie, and said to the Nazi concentration camp officer, I love you. Mm-hmm. Now, from that point on, they left him alone. They thought he was completely crazy. But what happened, <laughs> what happened was his ability to control bleeding and pain increased exponentially. So when we studied him in the lab, what he did was would, would be to take a sharpened bicycle spoke, large diameter, unsterilized needle, and he would push it completely through his bicep. Now, this is one of those do-not-do-this-at-home moments. Um, And I'd heard about this. I'd seen films of it. I'd been told by Dr. Green and and Dr. Kamiya, who is my research uh, advisor, that this was possible. But when I saw him actually do it, and when I looked at the instrumentation we had hooked up to him that showed uh, slow-wave activity in his brain, slow heart rate, very regular heart rate, no increase in blood pressure, no subsequent infection, no change in respiration rate or pattern, uh, no other kind of physiological responses we were measuring. I was astounded. And I thought, this is impossible. Everything we know about the autonomic or the involuntary nervous system was being violated by this person entering into a state of meditation. And we had uh, one of the criticisms of the studies is that, well, maybe he's abnormal or these people are abnormal. They don't bleed or feel pain like the rest of us. So we did standard bleeding time tests and standard pain reaction time and tolerances before they meditated. And in Jack's case, everything was perfectly normal. He bled pain just like all of us. But when he was meditating, he had this profound shift and the last thing that, that I'll say that, that, again, was this, aha, this is amazing. Uh, he said that when he would push the bicycle spoke through his arm, and this is a hard thing to do. There's a lot of tissue. There are major arteries. And oh, he did sure. to him if he hit a major artery or not. In fact, in one of the demonstrations, he actually did hit an artery. And it was amazing to watch him close that down like, like, a, like a faucet. Um, he said, it's like, I don't feel the needle. He said, it's like me pressing on my arm with my own finger. There is a sensation there, but it's not a sharp, distracting, painful sensation. It's simply an awareness of the fact that I'm doing this with my arm. And again, that, that has stuck with me to the present day, which shows the, the amazing power, if you will, that our belief systems and our a psychological states have on our health and, and illness and, and even longevity. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. So let's come back to a, another thing you're, you're known for saying, and that is our daily activities and choices 
determine whether those vulnerabilities, we talked about the genes early on, those vulnerabilities are turned on or turned off. What would be some examples of the day, those daily activities and choices in quotes that our listeners may or may not be aware of? So, you know, we think of traditional, you know, better nutrition, meditation, you mentioned, uh, exercise, activity levels, any thoughts or suggestions of things that may not naturally come to mind for a wellness coach or somebody listening to this? Well, all of those that you've just named have that kind of uh, profound impact. And uh, one of the, just backing up for a second, one of the questions that comes up is how does this happen with a gene? And a gene has a molecular coding. It's called single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs, S-N-P-S. And these are like, they're rheostats that coat the gene. And so all of these influences, stress, diet, physical activity, act like a rheostat. They turn it up or they turn it down. Mm. And that's how the gene is enhanced or suppressed in terms of its, its predisposition. And what I have been really impressed with is how delicate the balance is and how profound the impact is of simple dietary changes. Give you an example. Uh, there are dietary assays that look at the influence of diet on genes. And you will find information like eat walnuts, not almonds, because genetically you're not predisposed to digest almonds very well. However, you know, walnuts are, are really good for you. Uh, and so things like that, that degree of subtlety to me is always very surprising. Um, with physical activity, there was a great study just two months ago uh, out of Ireland that looked at 40 uh, professional uh, rugby players versus 40 amateur athletes. And they looked at their genetic biomarkers. And what they found is that the professional athletes, because of having to push and develop skills beyond the general population, all had enhanced increased biomarkers. So their ability to clear uh, you know, issues in their intestinal tract was improved, inflammation was reduced, reaction time for their hormones were all increased. So again, this deceptively simple physical activity, albeit at a high level, had a profound and direct uh, impact. So I guess it's, it's all of the factors that you mentioned, but to me, what is most surprising is how subtle and specific this impact is. You know, it's not a general global response. When I go to conferences and I hear about the uh, ketogenic diet, paleolithic diet, mm -hmm. high fat, mm -hmm. low fat. Sure. Now there's the celery juice fasting diet that's making the rounds. Oh, no. You know, I just kind of shake my head and just think it's totally silly because the reality is there's no one perfect diet. So probably oh. the closest diet that comes to being proven and having good data is the Mediterranean diet. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we find with the people you studied looking at optimizing their epigenesis, uh, the Mediterranean modified Mediterranean diet is most often characteristic uh, of them. But, uh, you know, there's no perfect diet. And what these assays, what these assessments allow us to do is to say not what is the perfect diet generally, but what's the perfect diet for you? How does meditation affect your genetic expression? How does physical activity affect you? What is your physical environment doing in terms of promoting your health or well-being or not. So the, I guess the, the, the bottom line, if you will, is precision medicine 
or personalized healthcare is really coming. That's the future. That's the future that I see in the next two to five years. And, and that's really exciting. And, and you, you spoke about that at the conference and it, it definitely raised the, the energy in the room as you were talking about that. What in the meantime, as we're kind of sort of waiting for that, I know not everybody's waiting for it. There are some options there, but on a practical level for the everyday person over the next two to three years before this becomes more broadly utilized, how do people individualize that? So I'm, I start exercising. What are there things I can be looking for, or I try a different uh, eating plan that's more similar to the modified Mediterranean diet? What what would I be looking for that would tell me, without doing the biomarker checks, that it's having a positive impact? Well, there are a lot of subjective uh, measures, and by the way, these these assays are available now. I mean, there are about seven or eight testing companies that do a very good job. In fact, one of them that I work with, I don't have, by the way, I don't have any proprietary, just for disclosure, <laughs> I don't have any proprietary or for-profit relationship to any of these companies. It's really an objective assessment. But one of them I work with has actually provided me with a code that I could give to your listeners or give to you that That's would it. give them a 30% discount from one of them looking at these assays. So the assays exist now and they're going to be getting better over the next two to three years. Prices are dropping. Uh, I think pretty soon they'll be literally kind of uh, over the counter. Now, in, in the interim, I think one thing, for instance, with dietary uh, intake, most of us race through meals. We race onto something else when it's over and we fail to notice the impact of what we have just eaten. So if you wait about 30 minutes after you've had a meal, it could be a, a quick meal, but just check in 30 minutes later, how are you feeling? If you're feeling lethargic, if your attention is wandering, you don't feel quite as sharp as you did, it means that something you just ate is adverse. It's not good for your body. It doesn't matter if it tasted good, you like it as a favorite food, it means it's had an adverse effect on you. So just paying attention to the impact of what you're eating on your mood, on your mental state, is a great barometer absent these kinds of assays, mm. which are objective and, and precise, of uh, how to evaluate your diet. In terms of physical fitness, it's not so much a matter of, oh, I'm going to go out there and run because it's going to prevent a heart attack. That does not last. Uh, fear is a poor motivator yeah. <laughs> for anyone anything. So the really the trick with any physical activity is mixing it up, doing different things so you're not bored by one particular exercise and doing something that you really enjoy and doing it at least two or three times a week for anywhere between 15 and 30 minutes. Um, the other thing that the more current research is finding is what's called interval training. So instead of elevating your heart rate up to a sub-maximal sub, sub level of aerobic exercise and maintaining that, the best thing is actually three to four minutes of maximal exertion followed by three to five minutes of uh, decreased and, mm -hmm. and, in effect, rest exertion, then back up to three to five minutes of peak exertion. And you cycle through this peaks and troughs for about 12 to 15 minutes that's what's called interval training and turns out to be the best in terms of cardiovascular health, weight loss, and general muscle tone 
for individuals. So suddenly this onerous, oh, I've got to go out and exercise three times a week, <laughs> 30 minutes, and it goes away. <laughs> and uh, my best suggestion for people in terms of monitoring that is how do you feel? Do you feel better or worse? Does it sharpen you? Does it increase your energy or not? And that will tell you how well the that is happening. I guess the last thing would be if you're concerned about environmental exposure, and again, it's in terms of air quality, soil quality, foods, radiation, um, is how do you feel when you're in your home? Some people walk into their own home and they feel badly. So it's kind of a toxic environment and it may be off-gassing from components of the house. Or you walk into your work site, your workplace, and you feel suddenly kind of either lethargic or disoriented or not as energetic as you did. It may be because the air recycling is very poor in that office building. So I guess the bottom line is just pay attention to the impact of all of these influences on you. And that will tell you a great deal about what to do or not do to enhance your health. I love it. That especially the the fueling piece, the nutrition piece of, okay, pause 30 minutes afterwards. How are you feeling? That's a great indicator and something every one of us can be doing. I love it. Before I forget, you mentioned that the discount code that you don't have any conflict of interest there. That'd be great if you don't mind sharing that and folks that are listening might want to tap into that a little bit. Yeah. Um, and one of the seven or eight companies is a company called Day2, D-A-Y-T-W-O, Day2.com. And Day2 is a 10-year-old company that was founded out of the Wiseman Institute in Israel. Now, the Wiseman Institute is one of the world's great nutritional sciences centers. So the science, the thing I like about Day2, the science is solid. Uh, and what they, they're just coming into the United States, I think in the last year, uh, they have an office in the East Bay in Northern California, and they've just begun to make their, their assessment available. So it's day2.com. And when you go log on to purchase it, I think it's around $250. The last time I looked, I think that's the price. Okay. If you put in Pelletier, my name, Pelletier 30. Pelletier 3.0, as a code, you'll get a 30% discount. Perfect. And it's just that because I've worked with them and I talk about them when I've got them in my PowerPoint, as you saw at the conference, um, they like that, obviously. And they said, <laughs> well, let's provide you with the means for people to get access to this at a reduced price. So that's a good one. And it gives you very detailed information. So for people concerned about weight loss, or food sensitivities. Um, certainly if you're pre-diabetic, this is a, a life, life changer. Uh, or if you are diabetic, if you're a type 2 diabetic and you're having difficulty really determining best foods on your diet, this day two is perfect. It is the best thing I've ever seen out there. And one of the uh, things that has occurred with patients in our cardiology clinic at UCSF is people will come in and say, you know, I'm following the guidelines. I'm just not getting results. And most of the doctors think, oh, they're they're lying or they're not following the guidelines because I'm not seeing changes in their blood markers. And when we have subjected them to the genetic testing, what we find is that, yes, they are following the guidelines and the guidelines are not working. Hmm. That's what's so important. So I'll give you one example. 
Um, if I ask you now, is uh, a banana or an Oreo cookie less likely to spike your blood sugar? Which one would it be? So most people would say banana will spike your blood sugar less. The cookie will spike it more. It turns out for about 30% of people that eating a banana it actually will spike your blood sugar more than a cookie. Now, that is a shocker. That's not something that we can be aware of. We may or may not be aware of that even in the method we talked about of paying attention to the aftermath of what you consume. But that's the kind of information that you can get from these dietary assays. So again, you know, day two, it, it, it's a good one. I, if, if your listeners have an interest, that's one that I would really recommend. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. Confusing question for me that you mentioned during the conference. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I'd like to have you at least touch on it for us. And that is the generational epigenetic changes. So how our choices, how the choices I make today can influence our kids and potentially grandkids. And I'm, I'm assuming this is post-birth. Like the, the connection as a woman's pregnant or as you know, as the, the couple is growing up and they're about to have children, I can, I can see that, but I struggle with understanding how my choices after the kids are born outside of modeling actually can influence them and maybe even grandkids. Can you talk us through that a little bit? Uh, yes. Well, you know, one of the things you're pointing out is if, some, if a woman is pregnant, if you have a pregnancy in your family, uh, what you do by way of genetic expression before, during, and after the pregnancy, even after the pregnancy, will have a direct impact on the child. So your uh, changes, if you will, if you make positive changes in genetic expression through all the things we've been talking about, that will be transmitted to the fetus in utero, and you will have a child that has a push in a more positive epigenetic direction. So that's very clear. The other part that you're talking about is something that's really uh, quite surprising. It's called transgenerational epigenetics. And what that means is some genetic pushes actually skip a generation, which is pretty amazing. Um, where this was discovered was in looking at the epigenetics of the survivors of Nazi concentration camps. The uh, hypothesis was that the offspring of the survivors should have a hyper arousal uh, because of the genetic push that the parents had in, in the concentration camps. Turned out that's not the case. But then they looked at the grandchildren and what they found is the grandchildren did have a hyper arousal tendency toward highly stress reactive conditions. Now, why that's the case, no one is certain, except the fact of, again, this modification factor. So maybe the parents or the offspring of the uh, survivors of concentration camps were more loving, more caring. They were taken care of. The survivors did not want their children to suffer, and therefore that was not expressed in their mm -hmm. genes. But then the third generation, the parents forgot about that, just let the children be reared on their own, and had this hyper arousal. There was also a recent study, which I, I thought was fascinating. Again, it came out after my book was published, uh, but it was from the University of Cork in Ireland. They looked at predisposition to obesity, and they looked at grandparents, both maternal and paternal grandparents, and they wanted to know, did their weight have a predictive impact on their children? The answer was no, kind of surprising. 
Hmm. But what was even more surprising is they looked then at the third generation, so the grandchildren. What they found is on the patrilineal side, so grandfather to son to grandson, there was no prediction that didn't really, you know, that whether grandfather was heavy or not didn't matter. However, for the grandmother to to female child to the grand to the female grandchild, there was a high predisposition to obesity. So if the grandmother was obese, the mother was not necessarily obese, the grandchild had a strong push toward the, toward obesity. So somehow that skipped an entire generation and manifested in the third generation. So there's a whole subset of research going on now looking at these kinds of odd transitions and inherited values that seem to, seem to uh, skip generations and show up in subsequent ones. Interesting. Wow. All right, let's turn the mirror around here for a second. What is one or or a couple, if you'd like, interesting ways that you're applying your research in a way that might surprise our listeners? Well, um, I mean, I, I mean, personally. <laughs> yeah, just in, in your life, in Dr. Pelletier's life, what, what are you doing with your research to, to, to garner the benefits? Well, I, I have modified my diet based on these assays. I always try them first before I recommend them to patients or to listeners <laughs> or people like, like your, your, your coaches. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I've changed my diet. Um, I do have a protein drink every morning. And to give you an example, um, I, I, I had low-fat dairy as the main liquid, and I switched from low-fat dairy to uh, rice stream because I thought, well, that's healthier, lower in fat, et cetera. When I did my assay, it turns out that rice stream really spiked my blood sugar. Mm. So I switched back to low-fat dairy, and in fact, now the glycemic response stays relatively flat. Um, so that's, you know, one change. But I do have, you know, a protein drink. I certainly, you know, I, I've meditated literally since I was 18, and I continue that on a daily basis. And, and, and I think that the meditation allows us to go inside and to look at uh, the point of view from which we're making choices about our life, about our beliefs, about what we do. And if we have a point of stillness from which we make those decisions, I think they're better, they're clearer, they're more benign. So I, I do continue a meditation. Um, you know, I'm physically active. I you know, here in San Francisco, it's fairly easy. So I swim, I surf, um, you know, I do some running, although I don't enjoy it. So I don't do very much <laughs> of that, but I stay, you know, physically active. And uh, the, the other is that I really love my work. Mm. I mean, I love what I do. And if I didn't, I would stop. Mm. And I think if you do what you love, that's a critical factor in genetic expression. I think that really enhances the, uh, uh, ability of our body, body and mind to optimize health. And I think the last thing is I really become more cognizant of spending time with friends and family. Mm. I mean, time is the one thing that is our most valuable possession. It's the one thing you can't get more of. You can't get more time. Um, and yet how much time we squander or don't use in a way that's productive and positive. I really become aware of that in the last oh, four or five years. So it's more time with friends, more time with family. And I just think that that's made, at least for me, a huge positive difference. So those are, you know, some of the things that, 
on a, on a daily basis that, I, that I'm doing differently. That's a great list. It's, it's nice to know that you're applying what you're talking about. And it's not just do what I say and not what I do. All right. So now you get a chance to design a billboard. It's going to be on the busiest street in the country. What would it say? Any, any message you want to portray? <laughs> uh, I think in, in I think in your, your one of your early statements actually captured the a phrase I really like, which is "genes are not your destiny." Love it. Um, if there is one message that I would convey to people, which is you are not a victim of genes; um, they do not govern your state of health, they do not govern your longevity, and everything that you do makes a difference in terms of manifesting health and long life expectancy for yourself. And so my main message on a billboard would be genes are not your destiny. Be a good bumper sticker. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. All right, Dr. Pelletier, I appreciate you joining us. Any final words of wisdom for the coaches that are out there working with folks that just want to get better? They want to improve their lives, their futures. Any kind of summary things you'd like to leave us with that maybe we haven't brought up yet? Well, I, I just want to commend uh, coaching as a profession and commend your coaches in particular, because in all of our research with corporations and the corporate program I, I've run for 30 years includes uh, the corporate members are, are uh, American Airlines and IBM, Ford, Dow, Lockheed Martin, Apple, Oracle. They're really prudential. They're really blue ribbon companies. In all of our interventions, we use health coaching. So because it's inherently less expensive, we develop the computer algorithms, and then the coaches interact with the people using the computer algorithms to really counsel them, to really help the people make better life choices. And, and we've changed the lives of you know, literally tens of thousands of employees through the skills of the coaches. So I have you know, immense respect, and, and I, I'm a real advocate if you will, of the coaching model to improve health. Uh, and, and I think we'll see more of this. Telemedicine is becoming more acceptable, mm-hmm. certainly in the work site. And I think there's a, a bright future. And, and uh, I commend every coach for the, the impact they have. I appreciate that. Thank you. Great way to wrap up. Thank you again for joining us. This has been fantastic. <laughs> Thank you for the invitation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Absolutely. Wasn't that fascinating? I remember the first time I heard Dr. Pelletier's research, I was just stunned about what it meant on a practical level. We were so grateful he was willing to invest the time with us to share his insights, and I hope you found this hidden gem to be valuable as well. Thanks for tuning in to the number one podcast for health and wellness coaching. Next week, next week's a fun one, we welcome one of my childhood heroes to the show during the week that leads up to the Super Bowl. I won't gush too much on this one. Well, I probably will. But when I was six years old, the Miami Dolphins completed the only undefeated season still in the history of the NFL. It's been over 50 years. Their star was fullback Larry Zonka, whose picture hung prominently on my wall and whose name I always picked when we were pretending to be our favorite players in the neighborhood football game. He recently turned 74 years old and has lived an amazing life. We talk about how his experiences relate to our health, wellness, and performance in an episode that I will never, ever forget. Thanks for being a part of the Catalyst community. If you're looking to pursue a career as a health and wellness coach and you want to talk through the steps, what it involves, what that means for your career, feel free to reach out to us anytime. Results at catalystcoachinginstitute.com 
Or of course, you can always access additional details on the website at catalystcoachinginstitute.com anytime you'd like. Now it's our turn to be a catalyst on this journey of life. This is Dr. Bradford Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute. Make it a great rest of your week. And I'll speak with you soon on the next episode of the Catalyst Health Wellness Performance Coaching Podcast. Or maybe over on the new YouTube coaching channel.